0: Hey, you're listening to the creative pep talk podcast. We help you succeed on your creative journey. I'm your host, Andy J pizza, and you can stay up to date with all things. Creative pep talk by following me on Instagram at Andy J pizza. Let's get into today's episode. Today's episode is very special. I got a little bit, well, considerably emotional uh, in, in this conversation with my buddy and my agent and my co-loop, co-founder, Ryan Appleton. Uh, he's been bugging me to watch Hamilton on Disney Plus. And, uh, and I, you know, a bunch of reasons why I hadn't. And when I finally had, I had so much stuff to talk about that I decided to record our conversation in case we wanted to share it. Now, there aren't spoilers. There's some basic history things in there that mostly come out at the start, but there's not spoilers to it. It's hard to spoil history, though. But anyway, uh, it's, it's not really about Hamilton per se. It's about this idea of hiding your way to the top. You know, I think at the start of my career, I tried to avoid actually having to be good at my creative practice to, to get ahead by just trying to get endorsements, you know, rather than results, you know, get this client under my belt or, or this blog to feature me or this artist to retweet me or whatever, as a means of avoiding actually being undeniably good at what I do and actually produce results that, that that grow an audience of of raving fans like and i think that this is a pitfall that is very easy to fall into because it's scary to get in the actual ring and actually try to get results it's scary to put yourself out there and say hey i'm trying to do this thing and fail right like i'm trying to make a great podcast i'm trying to make pictures online that move people that that touch people i'm trying you know all, the, all those things it's it's really hard to do that and uh and i want to challenge me and challenge you to quit hiding and i want to talk about that we're going to have the conversation starts off more casual in terms of uh, we're just kind of talking through different things but it's that's probably the best part of the conversation once that gets going because I felt like I could, I had so much more emotion standing in front of somebody, sitting in front of Ryan, telling him how I felt about the, about all this than just recording a monologue. And that's why I decided to release this information this way. But after we get through that, there's some, there's three points that I want to talk about, three places where artists hide and, and what I think the solution to those things are as well. And we get to that um, some way through the middle. But As just a practice of putting my money where my mouth is, I don't don't know if that's the appropriate phrasing or not, but in an effort to practice what I preach, that's maybe better, Uh, I want to tell you how I've been hiding. (sighs) So I've told my wife this yesterday, and I told my buddy Connor, who helps me do videos today, hi Connor. That I am pretty sure that I want to pursue performance and storytelling, and uh, probably the the closest thing to what that looks like is comedy, stand up comedy. But I'm not, and this isn't a form of hiding. You know, I could see people being like, I'm not trying to tell jokes. I'm trying to tell stories as a way of like avoiding trying to find punchlines and funny things and stuff. I could see how that could be a thing, but my favorite. Performers and storytellers. Most of them are in the comedy world. Um, people like Mike Perbiglia and Russell Brand and Hannah Gatsby. but I'm just as passionate, probably more passionate about their storytelling than I am their jokes. And I would like to lean heavier on that side because, uh, like my buddy Kyle Sheely says, um, where you know public speakers, they're in the game of getting tears, not laughs. So they're the opposite of a stand-up comic. They're a lay-down tragic. And I just, this is, a, I just want to take a stand before we get into this episode to practice what I preach and say I want to come out and say I want to be a lay-down tragic for real, and I want to pursue it, um, and I have already been pursuing it, but just kind of in a backdoor kind of way of masking it in just the podcast or, or videos, you know, that are something seemingly about something else. But that's that's what I've, I don't know. Maybe you guys already know that. Maybe it's obvious to everybody else. When I tell a story on the show, it's as much about creative careers as it is just the art of storytelling. You know, I feel like as a good Midwesterner, these little analogies and illustrations are our humble form of poetry. You know what I mean? If you're saying... It's sort of like this It's kind of like saying Your eyes are like the ocean Like that's what an analogy is for me And so it's my own My own little humble form of poetry My own little humble form of storytelling And uh, that's kind of what I want to spend The rest of my life pursuing Uh, You know probably on stage Probably on video um, But I'm pretty sure That's my primary objective Is to be a performer A writer performer So I'm not hiding That's what I want. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do with this podcast. I'm trying to make it as much about art education as education as an art form. That's what I'm trying to do in my Skillshare classes. That's what I'm trying to do on my Instagram videos. And I'm just gonna be more honest about the fact that that's what I want and that's what I'm trying to do. Long-winded way of saying it. I hope you love this conversation with me and Ryan Appleton about not hiding your way to your top and how to put yourself out there and uh, how to spot your favorite hiding spots so that you can break free from them and seek real opportunities to develop your craft. Here it is, that conversation. So thanks for doing this. I know that you have at least one huge question to ask me that you've been grilling me about actually for months, maybe a month.
1: Uh, I do. And this is the first episode of Popcorn and Pep, right? (laughs) Um, The question. How
0: dare you? No, for the people listening, Ryan has been... uh, I don't know what to say. Pressuring. Th- pre- pressuring, pestering about starting a movie podcast. And the problem with that is what, Ryan? What's the problem that I have with starting a movie podcast? Andy, Other than my wife will kill me for starting more podcasts.
1: Andy doesn't watch
0: movies. <laughs> I watch very few movies. Before you had your baby, you used to go at least once a week to the theater, right? Uh, Was that more than that's that?
1: That's true. Every Saturday I would go to the movie theater. I, I forget the exact number. Um, I was just talking about this a few weeks ago, but I think in 2018, I saw like 386 new movies. Not all in theaters, but like new to me movies. Yeah.
0: I was going to say, I didn't think there was even that many that came out, but okay, that that clears it up. But, and I love movies. I love them. But I'm kind of like you with LaCroix, where it's like, I really have to feel like I know this is, I'm going to like it. To spend time watching it, so I do a lot of research. I'm like, you know, not just Rotten Tomatoes. I gotta go check out people that I respect, what they said. In fact, some of your movie ratings swayed me of like, all right, I'll consider that one because you gave that one nine out of ten or whatever. Um, That's good. Yeah, but I don't. It, it's it's a lot for me to commit to watch a movie. I probably watch one every two months. I'm I'm still honing
1: my pitch for the movie podcast, <laughs> and we'll get there because it's more about the intersection of creativity and how it relates to movies and and discussing that through the lens of film and whatnot. Yeah. But that's not why we're here.
0: That sounds like bait, but and I and I do obviously I talk about movies and, and filmmakers and entertainers a lot uh on the show as like case studies. So you've got me there. This is this is like a this is like a practice episode in that way to a Minor degree. This is the pilot yeah. episode. Yep. <laughs> it's not
1: now. But the question is relating to movies in some way. Yeah. Uh, something else I've been pestering you about and pressuring you to do is watch Hamilton. Yes.
0: And I have wanted to. I knew that I wanted to. You know, I'm a huge fan of Moana, uh, and Lin Manuel wrote the songs for that, and that they're. I'm obsessed with that. So I thought. And I thought I I'm really gonna like it. So I was definitely planning to do it just took me a long time and last night I finally watched it and uh yeah and and it might be my favorite thing of all time <laughs> which I don't feel like if any anybody who knows me I don't think that's probably a surprise no
1: I knew you would love it that's why I was kind of pushing for it so much and it it sounds hyperbolic but I I think it's a masterpiece.
0: It is. It's a masterpiece. I, I don't know if everyone has the same sensitivity to, to things as I do, but I more or less was crying the entire movie. (laughs) I was just, just tears. Like, and I don't know why, why is it embarrassing? Like my wife was crying and my daughter was watching it and she wasn't crying, but there's just something about like, I, you know, as soon as someone's crying, everyone has to look at you. To be like, they're crying? Are you like, okay? <laughs> like, I'm enjoying it. That's I mean, how I enjoy it.
1: A confession booth of this podcast recording. Yeah. I won't lie, I cried yes. as well. <laughs> um, and I do cry in movies, yeah. um, even more so since becoming a parent. And Not, just, so not to spoil Hamilton so necessarily, true. but I think there are certainly moments in there that hit you more as a parent.
0: I think when you have kids, uh, and this isn't true for everybody because I think – There's lots of big life moments that people go through that are comparable to having kids. But I feel like the stakes get raised. When you have kids, all of a sudden life just feels like, oh, man, things matter. It gets real, you know? And I feel like you are. and That's part of why I'm so picky about movies, like horror movies. Ever since I had kids, I can't can't watch them. I'm just like – and I used to watch – growing up, I loved them. But there's just something about like – I'm like, this is too real, man. Like, I don't know. Too intense. Um, Too too tragic. Yeah. Who do – and so my question to you is who do you think – which character in the movie do you think I related to the most? Oh, interesting.
1: (laughs) Um, I mean the easy answer would be Alexander Hamilton. Sure. But, I mean, he always has a chip on his shoulder and something to prove and that doesn't feel like you – the funny answer would be Thomas Jefferson, but I don't I don't think that's <laughs> right
0: either. I do he's my favorite in the play, but it's not who I relate to the most. He is also my favorite in the play. I yeah, love I love, I love so Thomas good. Jefferson. Oh my gosh. Um his,
1: his musical numbers are probably the standout yeah, for me too. Yeah, they're fantastic. Um maybe maybe Burr?
0: Yeah, it's Burr.
1: Maybe Burr. It, yeah.
0: Burr and and it's it's not a spoiler within like the first couple seconds of the play, it's given away that he's kind of the the villain in a, a bad way. bad guy, yeah. Yeah, it, it, and I think obviously it's in the history books too, so do your damn <laughs> history. But uh, yeah, I, I found myself really relating to Burr, and his whole story reminded me of my basketball career.
1: <laughs> your basketball <laughs> career. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah,
0: you know I'm a sports guy.
1: That's... <laughs> well, that's for our other potential podcast, right? No. The sports podcast. <laughs> but no, you're anti-sports Andy, so... Yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, it, Ryan's always talking about baseball, and I'm always giving him grief for it. Everybody knows on the show that I constantly am talking crap about sports, and so it might be a surprise to the listeners and to you that I, ha- seventh and eighth grade, I was like a basketball superstar. We actually
1: a superstar so you've upgraded (laughs) your experience from i played basketball in middle school too i was a superstar
0: i was i was a key player i was a key player seventh and eighth grade i think we both we won both years the set in eighth grade we were one game away from being undefeated (laughs) and i'll tell you all how that went down um so yeah i've always hated sports ever since i was little i just just fundamentally opposed to them you know i my my whole family was obsessed with them Uh, especially basketball. In fact, they named my younger brother Jordan after Michael Jordan. And I'm so glad that I didn't get named Jordan because it would be so disappointing to my dad because I cannot shoot the ball. It's just completely, it's a complete disaster. You were a superstar though. I'll get to the superstar. (laughs) I'll get to the superstar. But, um, But yeah, growing up, I hated it. Uh, and I was stuck in this family that was obsessed with sports, which made me probably hate sports even more. You know, my, my brother, my older brother was super obsessed. They would force us to play me and my cousins. Like he would bug me like, come on, let's play a game. Let's, let's play a game. And most of the time I'd avoid it. And then every once in a while I'd cave and we'd play and they would be up like 15, 20 points. And I would turn to my cousin who was my teammate and I'd say, I think it's time for the special bean dip play. (laughs) (laughs) he would say, let's do it. And then I'd say, bean dip! And I'd launch the ball at the backboard as hard as I could. And I would do that every play until they won. So it's just... (laughs) it it was surrendering. Yeah, basically, but in such a way that it didn't give them the satisfaction of winning for real. Okay. You know, um, and you were
1: cutting them off the knees. You're like, I'm going to lose anyway. So I'm going to take this victory away from you. I'm going to sour it. Yeah. Do the
0: bean dip play. The bean dip play. That's what it was called. Why was it? The bean dip play. uh, It's really fun to say. That's all. all know. it's fun to scream. Um, it's a battle cry. And you know, my older brother would talk to people on the phone about, basketball they would talk about the games talk about new games they're gonna play setting up street games and me and my cousin would sit next to him and basically call him like a pokemon named basketball where they're just sat where he sat on the phone going basketball 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 we're like what that's all you guys talk about it's ridiculous and we just troll him basically about his love of basketball (laughs) and yeah what were you going to say? Are you getting to a <laughs> yeah.
1: redeeming quality from the story? Because you were a superstar who did the bean dip play and trolled people for like- Yeah. Basketball. Okay.
0: So then seventh grade, I hit puberty before everybody else. And I was just- a lot bigger and stronger than everybody else in seventh and eighth grade i still couldn't shoot the ball but i did learn how to do layups and i could get all the rebounds so like i was like the second highest scorer on the team just from layups and i had the most rebounds and i would do the jump balls and i was just like a freaking beast in fact eighth grade i was a football star a basketball star and a track star And then ninth grade came and everybody, (laughs) most people got bigger than me. And that was the end of my sports career.
1: Okay. What is, (laughs) does you playing basketball in middle school have to do with Hamilton or, you know, relating to Aaron Burr or to creative careers for (laughs) (laughs) that?
0: Well, I, I think there's a, I think that there's kind of a hard truth about myself that I learned from, you know, watching you know in the in the movie i'm not going to give anything away but in history burr is seen kind of as a coward somebody who is is hiding doesn't want to say their opinions nobody knows what this person stands for uh, and and tries to rise to the top kind of in a devious way you know without actually putting his skin in the game in any real way
1: right i mean to quote alexander hamilton in the play says uh, if you stand for nothing, what will you fall for?
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I can just see this kind of hiding in my trolling, in my critique, in my hatred of basketball, because what I realized was when I finally got good uh, for that small blip in my life, that I didn't hate basketball I just hated losing. Wow, interesting. And I started to, as I'm like unraveling this thing about me, realizing there's this whole act, there's this whole hiding of hatred uh, for sports, which really just masks my competition, my my competitive spirit. And that I actually do this in my creative career as well. I did it with uh, when I started to get into picture books.
1: Interesting. does that ta- all make sense? Yeah, a quick yeah. tangent on that, really quick. Once you um, were competing and you realized you actually had some skill or you were good at it in relation to the people you're playing against, was that a sense of belonging that made you enjoy it more?
0: It was. It was. Yeah. I mean, I loved the team. I loved playing, and I loved winning. And I and actually looking back, and this is kind of a something that hit me only recently. I realized in all of school, those two years playing the sports were my favorite years like I loved it and in fact, I love playing basketball now. the only reason I don't do it is because I'm basically a liability for whoever <laughs> <whatever> whoever's <laughs> team I'm on and I just can't I just can't deal with the shame of being the guy who's like, oh Andy showed up, okay whose team is he on and I I get that there maybe there's some ego there, but it's not fun. It's not fun to be like, okay, which team gets handy? Nobody wants to play.
1: Right. right? You don't want to be last picked. You want to play that role in the game. that yeah. it, you know, isn't needed or it sours it.
0: You know it. Uh, it's hard to it's hard to enjoy um, a game when when you feel like you're you're bringing the team down. And and you know basketball. I did love playing it, and I do love playing sports and competing and all that. but I still I never loved it so much that I actually got into watching it or became a fan of the game. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, but i I did. I super loved it. and uh, and I and when I was looking back and I realized like, oh, this is one of my favorite things, and I almost completely missed it. By hiding behind this criticism or this apathy or whatever this is. You know what I mean? Like Uh, I almost didn't even play those two years. Right. A sense of like unknown being on the outside and whatnot. And so uh, this same – then I saw a parallel in my creative career in the way that I approached picture books initially. About eight years ago, I kind of thought – I think picture books is a place where I could win as a creative person, and so I'm going to go try to break into that industry. Okay. But the problem was it ended up being way harder than I thought. I pitched a bunch of books, and they all got rejected, and I could feel even you know, I worked like a maniac on these books, rewriting them, trying different ideas. I pitched so many different ideas, and I just at some point, I realized, like, uh, you know, I'm not, this is not a surefire win. Uh, like, I, I don't know if I have what it takes. And I kept getting, I kept trying, and, and, and actually, instead of trying to get into the industry in a, in a way of putting myself out there, I was always trying to find a back door. I was always trying to find like, oh, I know that editor because I worked on a different book for adults from that place. Or I could, you know, I'm not going to try to write a good story. I'm going to try to write a weird story. I'm going to try to not actually be good at this. I'm going to try to win it by without even playing the game. Does that make sense? It
1: does. Yeah. So kind of relating back to what, you know, Aaron Burr did in the musical, right? You were more, you were driven by the desire to win. And not necessarily to like, you know, authentically or sincerely put yourself out there or produce content or, you know, in, in such a way that was more true to who you were, it was more about the act of winning.
0: Yeah. it wasn't about, it wasn't about playing a a game that I was excited to play or believed in or cared about. It was, and I think the reason we're talking about this, what this has to do with anybody is i think often we choose our battles based on what we think we could win rather than choosing battles that we care about so much we're willing to risk losing and i think that you know at some point when i couldn't find a back window to break into the picture books uh world I just gave up. I was just like, you know what? I, I, this is another arena where I'm gonna just lose. Yeah, the and, fight's
1: too hard. Yeah, the villain's too tough. I, yes. can, I can't uh, surmount this.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can't break in. Um, and so, so for a long time, for a, for a good few years there, I just completely, I just completely gave up and shelved all those ideas and moved on to the next battle that I thought, oh, this will be a sure thing. So then, how did you get from that point maybe def- a
1: sense of defeat in the picture book world um, when you, maybe you weren't being driven by the purest intentions to where you are now because you have published picture books, you're working on you know authoring and illustrating new books in that in the publishing world um, currently. So you you have found success. How do you have you grown from that point to
0: now? So something happened in that time where I'd given up and I'd moved on and thought I'm going to go into a different industry or different world or different market or whatever. Uh, I went to a conference and I heard Carson Ellis, who's a picture book maker, do a talk. And I heard Mac Barnett and John Klassen who make picture books. Uh, they also did a talk and I saw that for them, there was this mentality of, uh, you know, win, lose, or draw, yeah, like, this is a hard game, but damn, it's a lot of fun. It's a bunch of fun to play. And I saw for them that, Winning wasn't about getting the Caldecott, selling another book, selling millions of copies, you know, all of those accolades. Winning for them was a chance to play the game, another chance to try to make a picture book that tickled their fancy and lit them up. And they, you know, uh, they were in it for the game and they were they they loved it so much they were willing to risk it being a flop. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and actually I'd, I'd heard the same kind of mentality before we, we talked about this. Uh, who was the person that you mentioned that the, the actor that kind of has this same um, mentality? Yeah, I was listening
1: to a podcast called the King cast the other day, um, by two kind of film writers, Eric Besby and Scott Wampler. Uh, and they were interviewing Thomas Jane, the actor, and he was talking about that idea of like, he is an actor because of his love for storytelling and performing, um, and he and he's dedicated to that, so he will show up and he will do his job. And it doesn't necessarily matter if it's in a theater of you know six seats or um, in a big budget blockbuster, or if that film flops, because he's kind of showing up and doing what he loves and doing what he's passionate about. That's all that matters. Um, and I actually pulled this quote because he was talking about like being in a movie which is a Stephen King adaptation. Um, yeah. that's what the podcast is kind of about, um, called The Mist. And he said, Is it perfect? No. I did what I did and I had the time that I had and I did the best with that that I could. Essentially if you saw anything in that movie that I did and you thought it was good, it's because I gave a shit and I cared.
0: Yeah. Yes. And I and uh, and I've heard Judd Apatow say a similar thing of, you know, he doesn't he doesn't need to have every movie be some huge critical success or some huge box office success or rave reviews or whatever it is. He doesn't, he doesn't have to have that. That just needs to be good enough to where they let him make another movie. They give him another shot. Why? Because the, the Oscars or whatever, that's not why he's making them. He's making them because that's what he likes to do. And I think that this fuel, if you can find that fuel where it's it, it's not about winning or losing, it's about playing the game, that's the most pure fuel on the planet. And for me, the reason why this idea of, of hiding your way to the top, trying to constantly find ways of never actually playing games, but getting the trophies anyway, like the reason why I'm so passionate about encouraging creatives to get out of that spot, quit looking for marketing tactics that allow you to skip actually playing the game, quit looking for glowing endorsements instead of results that speak for themselves. You know, like the reason I'm so passionate about it is because when I was trying to get into picture books through some loophole, what ended up happening was I kept making these manuscripts that were totally terrible stories. They just knew nothing i knew nothing about story structure i knew nothing about you know what you what you want to see with the protagonist or story arc or character or all this i didn't know anything about it and i'd get all these notes about well here's the thing we don't we don't really like in a story where the protagonist gets saved from without instead of within like we just don't we don't like that it's unsatisfying and i'm just like what the hell are you talking about like when i first when they like seven years ago six years ago when i started getting this feedback i was like I, I'd never been in the storytelling world, and I just thought, "This is ridiculous. This is this is so stupid." And I hid behind things like, "You just don't get it," or "You you want to do the old thing? You're you're. This is just too original," you know. Like,
1: yeah, like it was it was confrontational, right? Like you just don't get my i. Idea, you're not on the same level as me. This is so original, or this is such a, you know, a great book pitch, movie pitch, et cetera, et cetera. That, uh, how dare you not see what I see?
0: And it yeah. was, in this ego is a facade hiding the fact that I don't know what I'm doing, that I'm not really putting myself out there. I'm afraid to try to actually have a punchline to actually, you know, to see, I'm afraid to try to write a good story because I'm afraid that I'm not actually capable of doing it because I might lose. And I think that people listening to this, if you're a regular listener, you know that the real tragedy and the reason why I'm so passionate about getting creatives to get out of that hiding spot and actually risk losing is because story ended up becoming my reason for getting out of bed in the morning. The times when I, you know, it, once I finally quit hiding and quit trolling and quit critiquing, quit, you know, giving all of the excuses of why it's okay that my stories completely break all the rules, and I actually started to dive in, I found in this really hard work that, uh, the the creative mechanics and, and topics that have been the most exciting things in my creative career. And they only happened from being willing to pick battles that I didn't know if I could win.
1: Right, you you kind of shedded the, the fear of the fight and you're like, this is something I, at my core, am passionate about and I need to figure out how to do kind of my due diligence and put in the work and actually pursue it um, in a way that will help me succeed opposed to just kind of faking it or half-assing it or going at it with the wrong intentions.
0: Yeah, or some kind of finding a loophole or whatever. Yeah. And, and that is part of what moved me so much about the movie is that Hamilton embodies like willing to risk it all for his shot. For his, you know what yeah, I'm saying? To not throw away his shot. Yes. Absolutely. And so, and 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 he's he's really whisk, r- literally willing to risk the biggest losses. Like he he and, and and obviously there's a whole other mess, a bunch of stuff, other things you could, could critique him on, but that might be another episode. Um, but that's what I w- I was watching that and I was feeling like. I, in my own tiny little way of risking these little, you know, missteps, wasted time, not, you know, playing battles that I'm unsuited for, whatever it is, I found what's so amazing about this fuel when there's actually stakes. That it doesn't get good until there are stakes. When you didn't rig the system, when you actually might lose, that's the good stuff. That's what makes you, that's what makes you come alive as a creative person. And when I talk to people, you know, I talk to someone in public radio who's doing, works on some of the biggest shows in the country, you know, there's, there's thousands, millions of people listening and the stakes are real. When you talk to somebody that's actually in the ring time and time again, they don't have all the answers. They don't have this huge ego. There's always a humility of, you know, I don't know. Here, here's my here's my ideas. These are the things that I try to do. And, and even when I try to do them, sometimes it's a good story, sometimes it's not. But man, it's fun to give it a shot. It's fun to actually be in the ring.
1: I did want to dive into my uh, something I tweeted the other day about Hamilton (laughs) um, being like baseball or Broadway being like baseball. Mm. So I I want to run through this this real quick. uh,
0: Can I just say this whole podcast is kind of the anti. This is like giving you everything you want on a silver (laughs) platter: sports and movies. That's what the whole podcast has been about. This
1: is your gift to me. This is yeah. But I'm going to tie it back to what you said of like showing up, right? Uh, So baseball is like Broadway because you have actors and athletes at their peak skill. They've worked hard to get to this point, performing at their peak talent for three plus hours day after day after day. They're showing up, they're putting in the work, and they're performing. Mm. They've trained and practiced to deliver on a very specific role and position most of the time for the majority of their life. And then they show up to bring that to the table as an integral part of the overall team. Yeah. The show or game is ultimately an effort of the entire group working together. I.e., there's no I in team that works for Broadway and baseball mm-hmm. and the results of one night or one performance or one game isn't necessarily that important because you always have the next game, the next night, the next performance, the next at bat. Yeah. So it's the idea of keeping, you keep showing up, you keep putting in the work. And as long as you do that consistently in um, with a passion, ideally, the results will come.
0: Yes. And I uh, you're you're ahead of me and we're going to fast forward. It's a good, that's great foreshadowing to what I want to end with, which is about getting stage time. Uh, but you're totally right. And actually, you know, I grew up in the Midwest uncultured. And I I feel like musicals and theater. It's kind of like hummus for me. Like there's a huge range of hummus. There's really bad hummus for me. And then there's hummus where I could drink it. It's like a bean milkshake, bean frosty. Um, That's gross. <laughs> it's gross. Hummus is kind of gross, but it tastes delicious when you put sriracha on there. I love it. But but hummus has this huge, and I feel like for me, theater feels like that. You can go, if the play is not my kind of thing, I'm like, I'm, we, uh, you know, we actually went to Broadway when, uh, we went to, um, oh no, it wasn't Broadway. What? We were in London. What's the one, what's it called in London? Shoot. Uh, That's, I'm from Indiana. Okay. I don't know, but we, we were placed (laughs) in-
1: It's on the tip of my tongue and I
0: cannot- West end? Something like that? Okay. Anyway, I walked out of one of those places. i was a young boy ryan okay but i just couldn't stomach it and for the longest time i thought i don't like theater i don't like musicals right but then and and sophie was always trying to get me to like change my mind but it wasn't until i got a taste of the good stuff that i'm like this might be the mo the best creative format because you have all the things of tv music all these things and it's Happening in real time where the stakes are high, yeah, and you're like watching these people at their peak performance, having to be present and show up and give it their all, and it's, it is so moving.
1: But the, there's absolutely, and there's but there's also some humility to that, right? Like if you don't hit the right note or you have an off night, um, you learn and you improve and you do it better the next
0: night. Yes, and that's the only, the only way to get good is the, that risk yeah. is the risking the loss and that's everything we're talking about and i feel like i know everything it, we're talking about is baseball right? <laughs> why
1: well, I why mean, the risk of uh you go to the plate and you're zero for 14 and you've you've struck out in the last seven games yes
0: and it's uh, go ahead sorry what, was, what were you going to say? That was essentially the okay. end.
1: But on the eighth <laughs> game, you hit a grand, walk-off grand slam, and your team wins. Like
0: yes, and there's and, and and so my this what I want people to take away from this is to give it another at bat. Go out there win the stake when there are real stakes because you don't you can't when we're watching when I'm watching Lin Manuel Miranda. Part of what you know, I'm I'm inspired by Hamilton and this character but I'm also inspired by wh- the technical, how technically perfect and fast paced and next level that production is. I just know from a creative perspective that you only get there from a million at-bats. Like yeah, you, absolutely. The only reason he can write this and knows how to, how he, you know, the ma- for me, the mastery is how many moments he created of like swelling humanity, like. Tapping into the human condition. Yeah.
1: You, you feel emotional talking about us crying during it. Like. That um, only happens from time at bat. Yeah. And that it wasn't, what's the overnight success quote?
0: The, uh, what the, oh, oh, the one about overnight success doesn't come with the wisdom on how to handle it or is it a different one?
1: It's not that way. <laughs> and I can't remember, but there's no such thing as overnight success. Right, yes. what, what you don't right. see is the, you know, millions That's, of hours. It's the in.
0: iceberg idea. Of yeah. Like you, you see the, the tip of the iceberg as the overnight success right.
1: and then, yeah. I mean, Lin-Manuel worked on it for seven, eight years. And he also had
0: content. other plays before that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. He, he was doing workshops and he was bringing in kind of day players and actors and they would test out scenes and songs and, you know, they were honing and crafting what we eventually
0: saw on the Broadway stage. And it's in my I got I felt frustrated watching it because I, I thought I could see in him how satisfying this home run is of a play, because you can, I know it didn't just happen. Nobody's a freakish talent to where they, oh, they write their play and it's just this. No, it, like even just the at bat of saying he, I've heard him on, we're going to put in the show notes, he was on Fresh Air a few years ago, uh, talking about, um, this with Terry Gross and, uh, just the idea, uh, the, the long shot or the, uh, of, of seeing, of comparing Hamilton to a young rapper of like I'm going to pave my way through the stuff that I write. And he saw this comparison of the 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 rap game and the founding fathers and he's like, "Well, I'm going to make this, you know, rap <laughs> musical." And and I think even that that was a heck of a swing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a really funny anecdote I want to bring up. I was watching After I watched Hamilton for the first time, I was diving deep into the YouTube rabbit hole, seeing all these, like, live clips and interviews with Lin-Manuel. And there's a great one where Obama is introducing the cast of Hamilton at the White House after it's already become a Broadway smash hit. Yeah. And they're going to perform some of the songs, you know, for an an audience of politicians and people at the White House and whatnot. And he's saying that he actually met um, Lin-Manuel, like, 10 years prior at an open mic poetry night they were holding at the White House, maybe six or seven, maybe it was. Yeah. Um, but then Lynn approached Obama and he said, I have this idea for a musical (laughs) and I'm going to mash up (laughs) hip hop with the thing that makes the most sense with the story of Alexander (laughs) Hamilton. And Obama's of course like, sure kid. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, then he's, you know, cut to eight years later and Obama's emailing Lynn begging for tickets. So like,
0: it's a. Am- and and so the thing that frustrates me is,, um, you know, I've had a few, you know, uh, tiny, minuscule, Moments that I relate to what he must have felt like when he's doing this play of all of these at bats coming together for this home run. And feeling I love how, how much you're using. I, that. I'm in it. You're <laughs> I'm totally sold out. Um, and and I and I have that satisfaction of you know when a when a story or an analogy that I've come up with hits on stage and I'm feeling it or I, or a, you know some of the picture books I've been working on you know whatever and I can feel that satisfaction I get. I got, I, I felt frustrated and kind of heartbroken thinking that so many creative people will never experience what he's feeling because they never risk a miss. They never met risk striking out, <laughs> but yeah. it's true. And I, and, and so that, so that's, I got me thinking about what is that? And I think that the first thing you got to do, if you want to, get out of this rut of hiding, is you need to identify what are your favorite hiding spots. Did you play hiding spot, uh, hiding spot? Did you play hide and seek when you were a kid? Of course, yeah. yeah. And if you find a good one that nobody calls you out on, you know, one that actually works, you use it over and over again at least I did we would do hiding hide and seek throughout a huge neighborhood and there were a few spots that I almost never got found and I just used them over and over and over again and so the same is true for art is that if you have a perspective that nobody's ever called you on if you've found a place where you can you can be in the art crowd and play the games and, you know, be accepted and feel like you belong without ever risking anything, without ever playing the game, you're going to go back to that, uh, that security blanket and that, that comfort zone of a hiding spot over and over and again. And I just want to, I have three of them that I want to just identify that have been, you know, comfort zones for me in the past that might help trigger some of that for other people. Does that make sense? Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, so uh, the first one is the avant-garde, and it's just uh, weirdness for weirdness sake. You know, I think that often instead of learning the mechanics, learning how to get good, there were lots of times, you know, in my picture books, I was – just writing something so weird and so different to anything that had been made that I thought maybe someone will give me a shot because it's just, you know, it's uh, it's so subjective. It's so original. It's so original, right?
1: It's an art school mentality. I think a, yes. a lot of people listening probably went through that, you know, in their undergrad when they were going to art school. Everyone was trying to be super weird and super different and – now, st- stand yeah. out yeah. and I
0: you know I'm a huge stand-up fan obviously and I think um and actually I actually really my favorite stand-up is storytelling stand-up stuff that isn't always primarily about being funny that is literally my favorite I like that more than just people that make you laugh non-stop but I know there are a lot of um stand-up starting out they get critiqued of you're calling it performance art because you just don't know how to write a joke. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And I know that that's harsh, but I only say that from a place of that avant-garde, the alternative scene is a place where I set up camp for a long time and I still run back to it. Because it's it's comforting to be like, oh, you just don't get it. It's Instead of being below them, you've, you've placed yourself above. So that's one. The second one is uh, this idea of like, oh, my art is just for me. It's not for anybody else. I just do it for myself. I do it whether I was here uh, on this stage or I would do it if I was on a deserted island by myself. It's it's just for me. And I thought of this. I don't really mean it. It's really harsh. But I keep thinking that if I hear that again, I'm going to say, oh, it's just for you? Keep it to yourself then. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty harsh. <laughs> it, is too, it is too harsh. But I, I don't really you, mean it. I, know I don't it, really
1: mean it. It's kind of like the idea of um... – that cliche phrase of like, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. So like you're doing what you love. Yeah, I guess for yourself or it doesn't matter, public opinion or you're not creating for someone else, which I think unless you live on a desert island or in a vacuum
0: of space, that is never true. And I think that, you know, I'm a big believer in this idea that good lies. You can't have a good life. It doesn't have some truth in it. it that, that's the only way that anything ever works. And I think it is true, similar to what we were talking about with Mac Barnett and John Klassen and Carson Ellis. They, they were motivated primarily by that pure play. They want to play in it, but I feel like that's kind of stage one. And then there's a joy that comes after when other people get the joke when you're like, I didn't just self express, I was heard and it it worked. And I think that that's that's a, that you only ever get to fine tuning it being delivered and it working by getting it in front of people and trying another at bat and another at bat. There, there there's just something about the, it's a two-part equation. And I think this thing of it's just for me is is a form of hiding because I think we're social animals and everything we do is interconnected. And um
1: I think it goes back to, like that particular hiding place goes back to what we were talking about before about um, you know, kind of passion projects and like Producing work that you can authentically and you're sincere about, and you have something, you have a story to tell in that regard, right? It, you can, it can be something that really resonates with you.
0: It should,
1: but you shouldn't hide it should in. Start there. This is just for me. You should be, you should be thinking more of how do I show this off to the world, and and kind of uh, depending on your medium, you know, movie, uh, picture book in some visual medium, audio, musical, whatever it is, how do I communicate that to the world? Like, how do I show them why I love this thing so much or why this resonates with me?
0: Yeah. And, I'll, and I actually think in a way, the whole process can still be at least primarily rooted in uh, it's for you and in the idea that, you know, m- maybe you, you want to explore this type of sensibility or this tone, or you want to achieve this thing in your work. And Maybe it isn't for the crowd, but the crowd can still be a testing spot to see if you get got it, see if you achieved it. You know what I mean? See if you... It, 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 and, and, I, and the other thing that I wanted to just mention on here is um, there, that trope of your art should just be for you, you shouldn't serve anybody else, it's not about them, whatever. Uh, I think that there's some truth and that it's a good starting block. But um, I feel like the people that... A lot of the like creative masters sing a different tune and I feel like it goes under the radar. I heard, um, Alanis Moore said on Dax Shepherd's podcast, talk about how her whole, all of her music has always felt like service. It's always feel like this is what I'm here to do for people. I'm here yeah. to give words to things that. You know women weren't allowed to say or feel or think and and i'm gonna go do that on stage and it's a catharsis for me but it's also a catharsis for other people and i heard uh jim carrey call his whole thing a ministry and it might sound ridiculous and i get all the ways that could go wrong i get it but uh i was so blown away by the depth of his creativity and the and the explosiveness came not from a place of, this is about me, this is for me, but from a place of service because even from his earliest days, he saw comedy as a how do I give people a moment free of concern? because that's what comedy did for him growing up when he was struggling, they had, he had a rough childhood. That's what his comedy did for his parents that had hard jobs and, and all these hard times. He would make them laugh and he would give them these moments of fr- free of concern. And in fact, that whole mentality wasn't just a, a motivation. It ended up being, becoming the inspiration for his breakout success, which was Ace Ventura. It, when he came up with that character, it was from lying in bed, thinking about... Uh, uh, how do I give people a moment free of concern? And he realized I'll do that by embodying a character that is free from concern. And I'd never seen Powerful, it from that man. light. I never, I never understood. And he's like, that was Ace Ventura. He's like, he doesn't care. And so the next night, he got up and uh, and he said uh, on stage, he said, "How is everybody tonight? All righty then, right?" And cut him off because he's like, I don't care. I don't care I don't have any concerns um and I just think that depth there's something different that comes from that full circle thing and and just hiding for it well I don't care if anybody gets it it's just for me anyway that's just, that can be a hiding spot
1: absolutely I, I think of um, David Lynch in that way. Like, obviously he's a very talented filmmaker and he's produced some, some great movies and television, but he very much leans into like, this is for me, this yeah. is very avant-garde and this is something that's kind of behind a gate in that way. Like, I, I don't really care if you
0: get it. Sure.
1: Um, not to disparage David Lynch, but <laughs>
0: yeah. And I, and I'm not And again, all of the stuff we're talking about, we're talking about creativity. Uh, you know, I think about it through the lens of philosophy like postmodern postmoderns would say we can't our our ability to perceive truth is so limited we know from science like there's you know there's all colors we can't even see there's there's this spectrum of experience we can't even tap into let alone our own limited perspective from our own individual vantage point point. and all the philosophy was not ever uh, this is the truth. It was always concept creation. And so this idea of like, it's not just for you. That's just a way to turn the diamond a different way and see something, a different perspective and, and see, am I hiding in that? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's do it for the play. Let's do it for the fun of the game. But uh, don't let that be an excuse to, to hide. Um, last one is uh, th- this. It, this is similar to avant-garde, but it's, It's a little bit different. And this is the idea of like originality is that you're saying that or before it's time. And one of the things I would hide in when I'm pitching these picture books would be you, you want it to follow your rules of story structure because you want it to be just like everything else. You can't handle the newness of this. This just breaks the mold. That's why it doesn't follow your rules of good because it defies them. And I think that, and I think that this is one of the biggest hiding spots for creative people. I feel like it's a. Uh, I think it's because partially because we we overvalue originality. I think we think that creativity is synonymous with originality, where I would say creativity is more about spiritual sustenance than it is about newness. Although I think that's uh, you know a, a key piece. I don't think it's the whole pie. Um, and and I feel like. This idea of being totally different or being ahead of your time, this is something that people hide in all the time.
1: I totally get that. And I think, you know, a lot of these hiding spot concepts, the point you're making is how it kind of definitively will hold you back. Yeah. Um, Not only from success, but producing your best creative work or producing fulfilling creative work and, or finally being able to get to what you're actually wanting to produce creatively.
0: Yes. And so once you identify where you're hiding and there's a bunch of other places too. There's a bunch of other excuses and you know w- one of them is uh hiding as the critic, hiding as the the troll. You know, looking back through all of my time with my brother of teasing him and you know throwing the game. That somehow Elevated me as I'm in control like the bean dip play was all about how I you know I'm above playing basketball yeah you know me trolling him as the basketball Pokemon that was me saying you're so stupid all you talk about is basketball but it came from a play that was a hiding spot for me and the reason why I want us to I want you to identify those is because all of the good stuff is on the other side that story structure that I was so adamant about avoiding ended up becoming the lifeblood behind everything that I do. And so if you find yourself hiding, the last thing that I want to tack to this is I want you to quit hiding, start seeking. Uh, seeking stages. Uh, seeking, what is it, what's the, the uh, home plates where you can, I don't know. <laughs> Is, it, is that it? Yeah, you, yeah,
1: sure. Seeking the field and going up, not being afraid to go to up up to plate.
0: How to do bat. you get, yeah, how do you, and how do you find stages? How do you find uh, places where you can get as many hours on stage, as many at-bats as possible, as many, rack up as many losses, as many strike. Uh, Out strikeouts strikeouts as possible because that's the path to the good stuff and so I was talking to a musician the other day and uh, I was talking about this idea of writing on stage, stage time, like just putting in your time, putting in your hours and he was kind of like well that's great for comedians but musicians don't have that, you know, every single I put out is under the scrutiny of my fans and I said well You know, are you a fan of Justin Vernon from Bon And he said, yeah, you know, he's a critical darling. Every album that he's come out with has been some, in the music world, it's been some uh, paramount of creative originality and, and artistic statement. And I said, yeah, but are you aware that he's got like eight other bands? Like all of which are not critical darlings, all of which are messy. Some of them are like old uh like you know consider just like hack music of there's a there's a band that he's in that's just straight blues like on the nose blues nothing original nothing new but right from the heart and he has you know these bands volcano choir red big red machine uh shouting matches uh he's got not to mention a million features on all these other things and my point is it's just a ton of stage time. It's a ton of stage time trying out new things. And I almost feel like you'll see him release two or three releases with other bands in between every album just to kind of get some time and see what wins, see what loses, and just kind of self-plagiarizes yeah. when he goes back to his main project. But
1: you know what that makes me think of? Um, just to tie it back to movies because yes. that's, that's why we're here. Um, <laughs> That's it, is, is Sam Raimi because he did that same thing, right? And the idea of like getting stage time, he's producing these small, self-funded, low-budget indie movies and he makes Evil Dead with his friends in the woods. Yes. Um, but then he goes back and he makes Evil Dead 2, which is him self-plagiarizing what he made in Evil Dead, yes. and he remade it. <laughs> and he made it better with the same jokes and the same actors and the same story, um, but to make... A better movie, like truer to his vision, um, and that what is what had kind of like cult, underground, critical success, right? And through him putting out the hours and making all these low budget indie movies, then you know the the nineties roll around and he gets the opportunity to make Spider Man.
0: Yes, exactly. And uh, what's the um, what's one of the big movies you want me to watch? It won the Oscar. What's I'm gonna watch this one? I really want to watch it
1: um i believe you're f- referring to parasite maybe? yeah
0: parasite and there i've talked about this on the sh- on the show but he's been really vocal uh, about how that movie is so much plagiarism from a movie that he made before it was just like how do i tell this story i took all these are the ways that it kind of worked but i didn't it's just another at bat it was like yeah. let me try I, this is what i was trying to achieve i didn't quite do it in that movie let me try a totally different movie.
1: Yeah, Bong Joon Ho, like Korean filmmaker, makes yeah. all of these, you know, foreign movies um, in Korea. Um, they start breaking into the U.S. market, and then he says, "Okay, now I have everyone's attention. I've put in all the hours. I've worked, uh, you know, I've put in the work. Um, I've kind of distilled what I want to say. Let me make *Parasite* that combines these threads and these." commentary and um all these social cues from movies i've produced before and and put it in this kind of more apt perfect package for everyone to consume and he wins best picture
0: yes and so if you're if you're a storyteller and you're you do talks online it might be podcasts that might be how you put in your time if you're a illustrator it might be personal work on instagram but how do you how do you play the game with stakes in public, over and over, get enough at bats to where you actually get to where you want to go. And this whole process, what I want you to do, start with the shadow work. What's what's in what's behind uh, the ego, what's behind all these hiding places. Yeah. Maybe we mentioned them today. Maybe we didn't, maybe you need to dive a little bit deeper into your own psyche. Yeah. At, at what places are you using these security blankets to build this fort of safety to where this place where nobody can critique you? Well, it's all subjective. It's just for me. It's, it's avant garde. You don't understand it. I'm ahead of my time. What are the things, where are the places where you are uh, pretending to be above something when, because you know, you're actually at the bottom.
1: Another hiding spot. I think I'm just going to interject because yes, we had talked about this before, but it's also the, um, the fear of the fight or the fear of failure, right? Not a, not even trying or getting in the ring or, uh, Well, I never really tried. Yeah. Yes, that's absolutely. They're hedging your bets. Yeah. You can't lose if you've never tried. So uh,
0: it, there's, there's so many, and we all, we're all guilty of them. And. So I hope that this inspires you to find those hiding spots, reveal them for what they are, and then ultimately find a stage where you can lose. Okay. There it is. That was it. That was the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed recording it, Ryan. Thanks for doing that. And you know, uh, I hope you felt the passion cause I definitely choked up a little bit talking about Hamilton. I, man, I loved Hamilton so much. It, there's so much about, there's something about watching humans risk everything because they believe in something you just don't see a lot of that in our modern times and as silly as it might sound that's kind of the life I want to live I want to you know and and like I told you at the start of this video or the start of this podcast that I you know the reason I want to be a storyteller and the reason I want to Go into comedy performance and stuff like that I I like comedy a lot But story to me Storytelling is like making the the feeling of synchronicity, you know, the feeling of a meaningful coincidence when something happens in your life. You're like, what? How did that happen when I was just doing that? Can you believe it? And you feel that feeling of maybe there is a God. (laughs) You know, maybe there is, maybe not even God, but maybe there is some point. Maybe there is some narrative. Maybe there is some thread below all things. You know, maybe there's something more than what we see. If the world, if life isn't, if there's not more than what's on Twitter, uh, you know it sometimes just feel like man that what's the freaking point right And so stories to me they the narrative grounding us in narrative is so life-giving and I'm um, you know I'm a mystic spiritually and I believe that um, you know that's about losing control saying I don't no i don't understand the universe uh, and i'm uh, and i think that a good story gets unleashes whatever you get it you hear it. Uh, look i'm not gonna cut all this i could cut it i have cut stuff like this a million times because it's long and winded and it doesn't make any sense but i'm just trying to share my heart with you i'm trying to be present i'm trying to tell you that um you know i'm i'm i care so much about storytelling and performance and writing, writing and performing that I am willing to admit that that's what I'm trying to do with my life, even though I don't know if I can do that. It matters so much to me that I am choosing that path, not knowing if I can win. I'm choosing that path because I care so much about it that I'm willing to risk losing and I, that's the kind of life I want to live, and I hope that you want to live that too. And I hope this encourages you. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to, uh, you know, sometimes I think about Yoni Wolf and the band Y for one of my favorite bands of all time. And I know he risked a lot making the albums that he's made. And I'm genuinely grateful. I'm grateful for anybody that does that with their, their creative work. Um, people like alex Sugg, (laughs) who made the soundtrack for this or people like jordan aaron who edited the show or people like ryan appleton who risks humiliation by just even having a public conversation with the the likes of me um, and working with me thanks ryan uh thanks to all of you for checking it out and uh till we speak again stay pepped up